I am Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge to go through that wonderful 1986 classic film Highlander, scene by scene. I'm your host Rob Daniel, and as always, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my kinsman, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Is it a pleasure though, Rob? Because this is a bit of a sad episode, right? I know. This is, um, yes, we are saying farewell to uh, to the cops, to Moran and Bedso. We are. To... Unceremoniously. <laughs> I mean, not that you would ever guess it from watching this film that this is going to be the last time that we see them. We are absolutely sure this is the last yes. time we see Okay, right, yes. It, it, it is, isn't it? This is the last time we see the cops. And it's like, hmm. So there was no conclusion to that. We'll get into that in just a second. Anyway, so for those who like to keep track of where we are in the film, and we are really quite way into the film now, this is a scene that starts at 1 hour 24 minutes 34 seconds and goes through to 1 hour 24 minutes 58 seconds. So 1.24.34 to 1.24.58. And this is the scene in which the cops are on a break, they're getting some food from a hot dog vendor, and the hot dog vendor is reading a newspaper, he's reading the New York Post, and and he's just amused at how terrible the investigation is going into the serial killer that is running amok through Jersey and Manhattan. As the headline on the New York Post front page says, Headhunter 3, Cops 0, which is a pretty good headline, right? Yeah, it's a pretty good headline. But in order for the cops to get one, like, based, based on this... What counts as one? Because one on the cop side is presumably catching him. Yeah. In which case, they can't win the game because he's already ahead. <laughs> he's ahead in so many Yeah, points. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the cops can only ever score one point. So the game is kind of biased against them. I suppose it could be because this is such a weird um, series of murders that, that they could be thinking it could be a cult. It could be like a Manson type thing. Oh, so they're thinking like, okay, so the cops can... Okay, so there's still everything to play for. In, there's everything to play for. In Murderball. But I do think that we are maybe giving the investigation a, a bit more credit than... <laughs> I mean, yeah, based on our discussion in the previous episode, they don't entirely... They're not entirely undeserving of the uh, descriptors that the New York Post apparently applies to them. That's right. And actually, yeah, to your point, um, on the previous episode, yeah, they've only got one suspect, and that is McLeod. So therefore, yeah, you're right, it would be... As far as they're concerned, there is one guy doing this. Wait a second, are you telling me that New York cops are looking to railroad an innocent man? <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Yes, and right, I mean, yeah, nowadays they'd just shoot him, wouldn't they? Well, yeah. Um, so this is, a, this is a good scene, and it's a funny scene. It's just, yeah, it's just one of those things that... It's how we've, I suppose, we've progressed in storytelling, but also in a way how we have become just too literal in our storytelling. Because in the 80s, you would just have these things where it's like, oh yeah, that plot didn't really get resolved, did it? But because it wasn't the main plot, and because the main plot was resolved so satisfactorily, you don't really mind that much. Whereas now, the filmmakers would just feel obliged, I think, to add another five, ten minutes onto the film 
to wrap up that particular subplot. Yeah, or just find a way to have them be at Silver Cup for the final confrontation, or, or add some sort of, or so, at least work them into the coda. I mean, yeah, because up until this point, the only, I mean, essentially, if they never appeared again after the scene where McLeod leaves the police station, where after the interrogation, you wouldn't actually lose anything narratively from the film. I mean, there's the bit, obviously, where Brenda goes and asks Moran out for lunch so she can grab the headshot, or maybe, like, maybe, yeah, just anything after that. How about some lunch? Lunch? It's a good idea. Who pays? Me. You're on. Because the whole point is that they can't solve the case, and you establish that fairly early on. Yeah. And then obviously you've got the scene we've just talked about where they go to visit Kirk Machinist in the hospital, which I guess just, again, reinforces how ill-equipped they are to deal with this case. Yeah. And then this is the kind of final humiliation because it's this New York... And is he a hot dog vendor? Because never, you never see a hot dog. You only ever see pretzels, I think. Um, that's the point. I, I thought he had a hot dog van, but he also sells ices, doesn't he? So I think it's just like an all-in-one van. But you're right, he might not even be a hot dog vendor. It's like, you know, going back to uh, the first episode of Matt Smith's tenure on Doctor Who, 11th Hour, where there's a duck pond, and he's like, well, how do you know it's a duck pond? There aren't any ducks. <laughs> what is that? It's a duck pond. Why aren't there any ducks? I don't know. There's never any ducks. Then how do you know it's a duck pond? That's the... It's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. <laughs> I tried to get, you know, at least one Doctor Who reference in every couple of episodes just because... <laughs> well, it's become it's become like a lucky charm now, hasn't it? And yeah, the street food vendor, as because we're not entirely sure as to his hot dog credentials, is played by Damien Leake as Tony. The rather acerbic and um, sarcastic commentator on the effectiveness of, of the New York Police Department. Hey, Moran, have you read what it says in here? You kidding, Tony? You know cops can't read. What does incompetent mean? And um, they've they've clearly got a relationship with him. Like they, this is clearly the guy that they go to to get their snacks because they Moran's remarkably okay with having the piss ripped out of him. Yeah, well, he's on like a first name basis with him, isn't yeah. he? But uh, but yes, it is one of those. Yeah, and he is. He clearly doesn't like having the piss ripped out of him, but uh, he's not going to have a go at Tony. And again, it's one of these things where this is such a well cast film in terms of the leads are all really well cast, but also. The supporting players are just amazingly well cast as well. well and Damien Leake is just great in this. In, in the tiny amount of screen time he's got, he always gets a laugh when you see this with an audience yeah. because what he's saying does incompetent mean. <laughs> and and, you know, and he, he's great because he's got that kind of um, check, that plaid check shirt, which I think you described as like Rothko by way of George Lucas when we yeah. were. And he's got that flat cap. I'm on Damien Leake's Wikipedia entry now. Go on. It's fascinating. Did you know he's a he's a uh, record holding track and field athlete? Did not know that. And that his his first role was in Serpico. He's also in Death Wish and Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I knew that. He's been in. He's one of those guys I think that would have had a very interesting career just as a job in actor in small roles, but small roles in big films because he's in Sea of Love, which was the Pacino film from '89. Is in The Devil's Own, which was the Brad Pitt IRA film from '97. Also um, from, the, from the school of wonderful accents. Yes, indeed. That is a muddled film, that is. Um, but there's, a, there's a, my favourite paragraph on Damien Leake's Wikipedia article is, and this is, this is verbatim, Leake has branched out to other jobs related to the entertainment industry. He claims <laughs> to, to having been a singer, dancer, director, musician, composer, musical director, vocal arranger, playwright, stage fight choreographer, and ventriloquist. Wow, okay, so he is a man of all trades. But it's he, just claims. That he claims. He claims. <laughs> okay, I think there's, there's, there's a story there as well. 
Um, he's also in a film, and I can't actually remember a minute, but I saw the film years and years ago. He's in a film called The Great Debaters, which is about, I think it's the first... Oh, is that Denzel Washington? Yeah, it's, um, and he's a teacher, and there's an all-black debating team. It's set in the 1930s, and it's based on a true story. And they basically got to the finals um, against Harvard, and it was this yeah, big shock, and of course it's the 30s in America, so there's a lot of racism, and, um, and it's a really, really great film. And I watched it on a plane coming back from Japan once, and it was... You know how you're always quite emotional or fragile on a 30-hour flight anyway? And by the end of the film, it was like, oh, I just need a tissue because this is such a lovely film. Um, so, yeah, he's in that. And I would strongly recommend The Great Debaters. It's just not one of those really good forgotten movies. Um, MJ will never forgive me if I don't mention this. Go on. He's also the character of Boss in one of the sketches in I Think You Should Leave. Oh, Which right, is the okay. Tim Robinson thing on, on Netflix. The Tim, Tim Robinson thing. Yeah. Um, sketch show on Netflix. Yeah, he's also in... He was also in um, The Cotton Club, so he worked with Coppola again after Apocalypse Now. He was in Death Wish. And the he, fact that he's in Death he Wish, said. which we mentioned a number of times in the last couple of episodes. Yeah. Because the whole vigilante craze. That's and, right. And, uh, he's also in Looking for Richard, which was the Al Pacino, Richard III film, when, they, um, when they're staging Richard III, and he plays himself in that. So he must have been in the cast for that. So he's, yeah, he, he's quite a talented guy, and he completely steals this scene. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the most memorable supporting artists in Highlander. And, and that's a crowded field. It is a crowded field. And he kind of steals the cops scene from them, their final scene. So that's what well, John Polito doesn't have any dialogue. John Polito is just there with like the weird dippy yeah. dip, the mustard dip thing, trying to put mustard on his pretzel, which is just, do people do that? Americans who are listening to this, please let us know. Do you put condiments on a pretzel? Yeah, because I always thought that you just ate a pretzel. When I went to New York, um, actually both times I went to New York I bought a New York pretzel because they're like wagon wheels <laughs> and um, it's like well that's well that's breakfast and, and lunch done and, um, so therefore these are huge but I never thought about putting tomato sauce and mustard on them I have to admit because at that point you're basically just eating bread with like on one hand it's like yeah you do have bread with condiments on it you do it you know you, you put jam and butter or whatever but it also just feels weird because because um like mustard and ketchup are mediators between bread and something else yes. between bread and fried meat and it's like especially when you're you know as you, as you said off mic putting it on a pretzel pretzels are folded pretzels it's not a uniform surface it has gaps in it you know there's there's a reason why you know you might say like a contortionist was twisted up like a pretzel yeah there are holes in the pretzel that the condiments will just slide through and get all over your fingers and stuff. Yeah, you know, you know that Bedso's going to end up with mustard on his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> on his suit. You, that's so in character. Well, that's the thing is that because you were saying a Moran's going to end up with um, drips of coffee because he's dipping his bagel into his coffee, isn't he? It is. Oh, like... dipping his pretzel into his. Was he got pretzel? Is, is it a bagel? I didn't think. Isn't the guy just bagels? It's... I, oh, I mean, I, I didn't think that what. It could have just been the curvy bit from the side of a pretzel. It could have been. My I God, it, you can't you can't dip a pretzel into coffee because the salt would be like. Well, unless it's a sh- unless, but they also do sugared pretzels. Oh, okay. Oh, well then, well then there you go. Then I never saw a sugared pretzel when I went to it. Ooh. Mm, do, you want this, do you think this is where um, Bedso gets his cherry cheese danishes from? Walker, get me a cherry cheese danish too, please. Because there could be a selection. Uh, Maybe there's like a. Oh, I think we're going deep down the culinary rabbit hole also, now. Also, because this is set uh, outside, it's very. You could see the marquee of the Saint Regis Sheraton Hotel, which is very close to Central Park. 
which is pretty close to Madison Square Garden. Um, yeah, pretty close. I mean, it's on Both of the 55th Street, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The, um, I mean, um, the St. Regis. Let me quickly check this. Uh, okay, yeah, it's, it's a 30 minutes walk from Madison Square Garden. Okay, right, so there might be some... There's probably, there's probably somewhere else you can grab a, a pretzel Terry. or like a, a, a cherry cheese danish between there and Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Um, I think also one of the aspects of this scene is that in shows and films, cops famously have appalling diet habits. It's um, And this one is like, that's probably your dinner, right? Because you're working this case and... Uh, and you know, the mayor's going to be on your ass later. The mayor's going to be on your ass. And so, so your dinner is a pretzel slathered in mustard and... His dinner's like a bagel, or it could even be a pretzel that he's dipping into his coffee. Um, just eating this <laughs> not very healthy food, but it's just got enough in it to keep them going. Um, yeah, it's a... But the point of this scene, though, is kind of, yeah, to suggest that the cops don't know what they're doing, that they've got no leads, that there's that they're completely out of their depth on this investigation. And to your point earlier, it would be wrapped up now, maybe even at the time, it's just... Yeah, maybe the way that it was written that they didn't want to rewrite it to get one of the cops in at the Silver Cup ending. Well, I think there's a version of the script where it is Moran instead of Brenda, who... Oh, okay. Who's there to kind of disrupt the Kurgan-McLeod final fight. And I think maybe, and again, I need to double-check this, and I will verify this afterwards, that Moran even got killed. Okay. Um, Let's verify that and follow up on the next episode. But, But you can see how this could be done, that one or both of them could be there because someone called in the abduction of Brenda yeah. or something. So they... And well, in the novelization, and we'll talk about more about this in this scene, the Kogan kills one of Brenda's neighbours who tries to intervene. Oh, okay, right. Basically crushes his head. Wow, okay. So, yeah, that's the thing, is that you could get one of the cops of the ending to, yeah, the climax when Connor and Kurgan are fighting, but just have him knocked out or something. And then he comes round and... Everything's just in says chaos, something. yeah. And then he goes out again, and then at the end he kind of says... Just go, I'll make it make sense or something like that. Um, to give this particular scene a bit of resolution, or this particular subplot a bit of resolution. But but then again, it's like, to be completely honest, I used to watch this so much in the 80s and into the 90s. And then hadn't watched it for quite a while before we watched it in 2018 at the BFI. And that was the first time that I noticed the cops are just dumped in this scene where it's like, oh yeah, the cops don't ever come back into this well, film. because Brenda's more successful investigation picks up because the next scene is her in the public library. That's right. Where she actually learns who McLeod is. And yeah, it's it's odd that this is the last cop scene and it's done in about three setups. Yep. Literally, there's literally about, th- about three shots. There's the one which is kind of looking at um, Moran and Bedso and Bedso kind of, you know, takes the um, pretzel and then leans on the car. And then there, then you've got the reverse shot with Moran in the foreground and Tony in the background with the newspaper. And should we talk a bit about the newspaper? Yes, um, but just before that. So the reason why it's only set up in three shots is because, of course, they're filming on an open New York street. So Outside the, the St. Regis, presumably. That's right. And you can tell it's an open New York street because of the amount of rubbernecking that's going on as people just stare directly down the barrel of the camera. It is hilarious how many people are just walking by and just notice that there's a film crew there and just look at what's happening. And But the thing is, you don't really notice that unless you're actually watching the scene for... If you're just watching the background. And I think yeah. that's a testament to Damien Leake and to um, Alan North and John Polito that you do just watch them. And it's only when you're watching it over and over again that you start to look at the background 
well, not, you know, they're not even artists, they're just people walking through a New York street. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a young girl whose mum kind of trips over her because she is slowed right down to look at what's happening. And the mum, I don't think, has noticed it and sort of like kind of trips over her a little bit. There's a woman in a blue dress and she looks at the camera. Um, there's a guy in a pink shirt and a guy in front of him in a white shirt. And they just really keep looking back as they go from screen left to right. They just look back again and again to see what's going on. And the best one, though, is... And would you like to talk about the best one? Is uh, the old guy who bears a remarkable resemblance to uh, Dominic Giannese, to, to Uncle June from The Sopranos. He's it, kind of got like a, almost like a corduroy jacket and he's quite slight. He's, he's white hair, balding, heavy specs. And he basically just kind of is stood next to a lamppost and is clearly like figured out there's something going on over there. And then just adopts a lean. Yeah, so he puts can his hand out and he's like, and he's and he's there like framed. I think, if I remember this correctly, he's basically the third person in that scene because Polito's off camera. In fact, like you know, Polito might not even have been around when they were filming that. So it's just them and this guy. It's so funny. It's like, it is uncanny how much he looks like Uncle June. Not just in his face, but the costuming. I mean, it's like that is Uncle June from The yeah. Sopranos and. It's so funny because he he stands and as you said, he adopts the lean to get like a comfier position against the lamppost and then just smiles as he's just watching and he's just watching the entire thing. And it's so he is screen left and you cannot miss him. He is just watching them film the scene and it is really Do you think adorable. it is Uncle June and he's over from Jersey because he's he's following the case because obviously the guy was murdered in Jersey and it's been bad for business. It's been impacting on business. So he's gone to New York to kind of yeah, I think that's the only... Scope out the situation. Yeah, that's it. That is exactly what it is. It's Uncle June. <laughs> <laughs> it is so funny the way that he just watches it all happen. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and, yeah, so the so the newspaper is the New York Post. It has a date on it, doesn't it? It does. Tuesday, April 2nd, 1985. And we learn that it is America's fastest growing newspaper. Um, it has a circulation, I think, of 930,000, which is very, very good, um, even for the 80s, when people were actually buying newspapers. Um, it cost 35 cents. And yes, obviously, the front cover of Headhunter 3, Cops 0, was made up for the film, but they do actually appear to be reading, or um, Tony appears to be reading an actual copy of the New York Post. And in... And you can see a headline on one of the pages of this newspaper called TWA Hero Pleads for Forgotten Seven. So I did a bit of research into that to see if that was a, if I could read the article. Couldn't find the article, but it kept throwing up stories about the hijacking of a, of a plane in 1985 by two Shiite Muslim terrorists who took the plane from Europe to Beirut and shot one of passengers who I think who I think was a serviceman. It was this American serviceman. They shot him and dumped his body onto the tarmac. And this was one of those very, very famous shocking images that would then be in lots and lots of documentaries for the rest of the 80s and stuff as, a, as one of the uh, terrible events of the 80s that was caught on camera because all these news cameras were there to film the plane landing in Beirut. So if that is the case, and, and it is referring to that particular hijacking, well, that particular hijacking was the inspiration for the film The Delta Force, <laughs> starring Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin, and was a film that my grandparents just adored. They rented that film out so much from Osborne's video library in my hometown when I was a kid that one 
one Saturday, they were given a free rental of it. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember watching it with them, and they just adored that film. Now, the Delta Force is not the best film in the world, it has to be said. And the real Delta Force were asked to advise on the film, but when they read the script, said, this is complete fantasy, we're not going to be associated with this. Um, So Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin have to battle the terrorists and rescue the passengers from the plane. That film is directed by Menachem Golan of Golan Globus, who owned Canon, who bought out Thorn EMI and eventually released Highlander. So again, it's like Ouroboros, the snake that is swallowing its own tail. Or again, we're like, yeah, jigsawing this. We're going to make it all fit. <laughs> I've looked at I've, I've looked at other world events that happened on April second, nineteen eighty five. Of course, this paper was released is the April second edition, so it wouldn't have been able to include this. But uh, Wayne Gretzky set an NHL record playing for the Oilers against the Kings in Los Angeles. Of course, the film was meant to open with ice hockey. Oh wow! Yes, indeed. And um, uh, this was the same month, April 1985, that New Coke was released. And now I, w- I need to go back and see whether I think it's an I think it's an original Coke can that Connor steps on in the garage. Yes, because if it's not, obviously that's that wouldn't be correct because the actual New Coke wasn't released until April 23rd. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, I think it is just the original New Coke, Coke can. can yeah. So yeah, yeah, New Coke when they had a different recipe for Coke, and I remember seeing a show in the 80s that was talking about the uproar that New Coke could cause across America, which would have been a warning, really. (laughs) But there was this, all these people who were getting really, really, like, properly angry um, about the fact that Coke had changed the flavour. And then there was one woman who was not angry, but she was saying, we've always loved Coke in our family. My daughter's first word was Coke. Her second was mom. (laughs) I thought it was going to be like, her first one was Coke, her second was Cola. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, your daughter's second word was mom because the first was Coke. Wow. Maybe maybe you shouldn't have been giving your daughter Coke before she was able to talk. But you were clearly saying Coke so much in the house that she just, that was the word that she latched onto, Jesus. But yes, but new Coke was a huge folly, wasn't it? And and they went back to, to the original recipe pretty soon afterwards, I think. But it would be interesting to see what new Coke tastes like, because it might just be like Coke Zero, which I think actually tastes much better than real Coke. (laughs) Strangely enough, it tastes like Pepsi. (laughs) (laughs) No, Pepsi's horrible. (laughs) But uh, um, Pepsi, what you'll get when they don't have Coke. (laughs) Yes, or anything else. Dr Pepper, anything, anything, anything. Oh, God, all right. Sometimes they've got Diet Dr Pepper in and it's the best. Oh, they've had that. Oh, man, I love that. Um, I was not aware you could get a Diet Dr Pepper. You can. Wow. It's just not commonly, because it's not commonly around. Occasionally you'll go into a Tesco or a Sainsbury's and they'll have Diet Dr Pepper. It's like, oh, today's my lucky day. <laughs> I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Oh, I did not know you could get that. Um, anyway. Part of a £3, £3.50 meal deal, you're, you're in there. Which will mean nothing to our American listeners. Or maybe to any of our <laughs> listeners. Like, why are they talking about soft drinks now? Well, why are they talking about Tesco meal deals? <laughs> yeah. Basically, guys, what it is, is that you get a sandwich, or like a little thing of pasta maybe, maybe a little salad, and a bag of crisps, like, you know, a little snack, and a drink for £3 or £3.50, depending on whether or not you're in Tesco's or Sainsbury's, that are the main kind of British... Supermarkets. Supermarkets. Yeah. And you get, and you get a drink as and well. You, and you get a drink as well, which, you know, occasionally, if you're very lucky, can be Diet Dr Pepper. They don't always have it in stock. And if you don't fancy crisps or want to go for a healthier option... Um, you can sometimes get carrots and hummus or hard-boiled eggs. 
Yeah, they had two little hard-boiled eggs. I mean, it's terrible for the environment, all that plastic packaging. I know, for a couple of eggs. It's terrible. Yes. <laughs> it really is bad. But anyway. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, so anything else to say about this scene with the cops? Other I, think, than... I think we're just drawing it out because I'm really reluctant to say goodbye to Miranda Bedsoe. Yeah, I am as well. It's um, We do need to say that Damien Leake is brilliant in yes. this scene. He is, his delivery is absolutely hilarious. And, again, when we saw it at the BFI, it did get a laugh. Um multi-hyphenate Damon Leake in terms of yes. yes indeed well he claims <laughs> well no, I think I think the track and field stuff is established I think I think those are set records really. <laughs> it was definitely in Apocalypse Now so as far as I'm concerned he can say whatever he likes because it was in one of the best films ever made um, two of the best films ever made yes indeed because he was in this as well wasn't he <laughs> yes I can't even bring myself to say watch me Death Wish because that of course is not one of the best films ever made um, yeah so he is great in this it's just weird that the... So what is the final thing that the cops say in this film? Something like, um, uh, Goddamn Mayor, you know, called me at two o'clock in the morning, can't even answer the phone anymore. Or words to that effect. Yeah. That mayor, he calls me at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, I don't even answer the phone anymore. Um, that mayor calls me at two in the morning, I don't even answer the phone anymore. And that's said by Moran. And then it's Bedso as well, because then it kind of cuts back to him and Bedso in that shot goes back to a shot of the two of them and then that's the last you see of them yeah and they're looking at Tony after what does incompetent mean and they're just looking at him really you're going to say this to us now it's (laughs) a 24 second scene so I may just include the dialogue in full yeah indeed it's um... hey Moran have you read what it says in here you kidding Tony you know cops can't read what does incompetent mean that may have he calls me at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, I don't even answer the phone anymore. Hey, what does baffles mean? <laughs> That's what made them issue the takedown notice. <laughs> <laughs> really? After all that queen? <laughs> so much queen. So much queen. Um, well, as you were saying, it does sound like, um, well, presumably because they were shooting on a New York street, the dialogue is ADR, you'd assume. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to find out if that is the original record. And because you can't see the mics, so presumably yeah, they got boom mics at least just to record the dialogue, even if they didn't use it. But that is, yeah, I mean, it's really, really clear dialogue. And I know that yeah, you can film on streets and use the original recordings. But if it's ADR, then my God, they are good at lip syncing themselves. <laughs> because it's like, wow, that you would never guess. But They managed to squeeze them in around Christopher Lambert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but it's... It's an open New York street. You have to imagine that would be incredibly noisy. You would have just the general chatter of people, but also cars and horns blaring and stuff like that. I mean, obviously you've been to New York as well, and it's like, it ain't quiet. (laughs) I mean, you walk down there thinking, it's like I'm on a movie set, and it's got 5.1 surround sound, or 7.1 surround sound. <laughs> it's really noisy, but it's absolutely wonderful. And there's steam coming out of, of that manhole. Oh whether, my God. whether or not there should be. <laughs> yeah, indeed, whether or not there should be. <laughs> it's amazing. But yes, so, um, mm, so you're kind of thinking, well, if this was looped afterwards, wow, that's a really good job. But yeah, we have to say goodbye to the cops at some point. <laughs> yeah, say goodbye to um, Alan North and John Polito, who... Thank you for your service. Thank you, yeah, it's been... <laughs> 
<laughs> They've been some of the most, at least for, you know, from, from my perspective, some of the most fun scenes to talk about because ultimately, as we know, they don't go anywhere. There's no narrative weight put on them. It's just... It's, it's there because... It seems to be there... One, because it's it's a hangover from earlier drafts of the scripts in which they did have more to do. And also, presumably, because it would be one of those things where you'd say, well, where are the police then? Are the police not interested yeah. in all these killings? And it's so, just another like genre element. And it's another genre element, yeah. And, yeah, it does have that 80s feel of the cops investigating something and yeah I mean it's there's lots of different elements that mean yes you do have to have the police in this but the way that it just gets dumped is <laughs> quite surprising but as I said before just watched it over and over again for years and didn't really notice that or didn't it wasn't a problem and it's not really a problem now to be honest it's just sad to see them go so yes if you want to watch any other films starring those two gentlemen so for John Polito you have to watch Miller's Crossing mm. if you haven't seen that he plays Johnny Casper or Giovanni Casparo, who is a ambitious mob boss, and he is so brilliant. I mean, that is by far his best performance. Well, I, I, and you've given me an excuse to sample it again. Yeah. I ain't afraid to use the word. Uh, talking about ethics. <laughs> I'm talking about ethics. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, he's in a number of the Coen Brothers films. Um, I also really recommend, if you want to see him play a cop again, watch the first couple of seasons of Homicide Life on the Street, which you should do anyway. Yeah, which, I, yeah, which I've, I've never seen, and I know... I mean, it's got an amazing ensemble cast, you know, not to... I mean, it's got Andre Brower essentially playing the straight, dramatic... The straight, dramatic <laughs> reading of the character that he plays in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Captain Raymond Holt. Yeah, Raymond Holt. Uh, it's Yafit Koto is the police captain. Melissa Leo. Wow. Uh, Richard Beltzer. Like, it's, it's got a fucking brilliant... Um, John Seder. Giancarlo Esposito is in it. Wow, okay. Yeah, so, so it's worth a look, then. <laughs> it's, 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 it's worth a look. And, yes, and uh, for Alan North... <laughs> Alan North, well, for me, it's um, it's going to be Police Squad, which is the series, and then Naked Gun was the spin-off, the big screen spin-off of that. Um, I mean, he's in Serpico as well. Yeah, the thing is, I don't really... Because what I know about Alan North, I think he's in See No Evil, Hear No Evil, right? Which is Richard Pryor is a blind guy, and Gene Wilder is a deaf guy, and they witness a murder, and they have to piece it together. It's a comedy with Kevin Spacey, um, a pre-fame... Kevin Spacey doing a British accent, which is, which at the time was the worst thing he'd ever done. Um, that, as far as we know. Yeah. As far as we know. Well, now what? Well, you know how I feel. And it's one of those films where I remember it being perfectly agreeable when I was about 15. I haven't seen it since. And, but Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor are always good. Anyway, Alan North plays the cop in that. Um, and he's, he's basically doing the same thing as he does in this film and also in Naked Gun. What's the story here? I got the commissioner crawling up my ass. But it's one of those films where it was the absolute career low point for Kevin Spacey and the absolute career high point for Joan Severance, who plays <laughs> Kevin Spacey's um, accomplice. And, and he's also in Glory. Wow, and, okay. And he's in The Long Kiss Goodnight. Is he? Yeah. Because I watched that recently, I cannot place him. Hmm. Well, as in, I, um, I watched it last year. He plays Earl. Just do not remember him in that. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, uh, yes, I think... Is he a friend of the family or something like I that? I think he might be. I saw it a couple of years ago, and I, I vaguely, remember, vaguely remember him being in it. Yeah. Hey, that was a really swell party. Thanks again for the ride. <laughs> you and Hal, you, you've been together now, what? What, a couple of years? Often do you two stick our fingers inside our hands and pull them out again? <laughs> Every chance we get. Earl, do me a favor. Uh, Every few words, have some bubbles come out of your mouth and say, "Get cold." God damn it! I'm not drunk. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. So, adieu, 
to two of New York's finest. <laughs> Anything else to say? What does baffled mean? <laughs> no, it's incompetent mean. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm sure the I'm sure our listeners are asking that very question. <laughs> Indeed. What does incoherent mean? <laughs> what, what, what does, does self indulgent mean? <laughs> what does rambling mean? <laughs> Anyway, okay, on that note, um, Mr. Wallace, thank you very much. Thank you. And if people want to find you on the internet, where can they do that? Uh, if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter at Rob M. Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, at all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Uh, Mr. Daniel and I also uh, host uh, another podcast that's more generally dedicated to film. Film, again, being the operative word, well, a bit of TV. Um, and it's called <laughs> it's called The Movie Robcast, and uh, you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this. And you can also follow that on Twitter, at Movie Robcast. Thank you very much. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. My writing is at electric-shadows.com, filmstories.co.uk, lahorror.co.uk. Um, yeah, more importantly, if you want to follow this podcast, it is at McLeod Time on Twitter. You can send us a Highlander-themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. And if you've liked what you've heard, and how couldn't you... <laughs> then please feel free to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. It always helps with us in the algorithms and stuff, and it's always very much appreciated to get the feedback. Is there anything else to add? No, I think that'll probably do it. Right, well, one more time. Cheers, guys, for the investigation. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. And... Another time, McLeod! Another time, McLeod! What does great dramatic delivery mean? <laughs>